Say amen if you love Christmas. There we go. Amen. Christmas is awesome. So we continue our series, our Christmas series, taking a look at Jesus' offices as prophet, priest, and king. Last week, Maisie preached, Jesus is our prophet, one who reveals God to us. This morning, we take a look at, our, at his next office. It's important because it's, it's an office that in Israel, someone would draw near to when something was very wrong. And I think this is something we sort of recognize in our lives, that when something is wrong, we draw near to someone or something to make it right, right? Like when something is wrong in my house, Gabby and I draw near to one another, and we watch cat videos. Sorry, dog people. We're cat people. I've probably said that before. I'm unapologetic. Love cats. Cats are amazing. And cat videos are amazing. If you were to look at our uh, Instagram private messages just to one another, it's like a thousand to one. A thousand cat videos to one something else that doesn't matter, right? When something is wrong, We huddle up and we watch cat videos because that makes everything right. But a cat video, unfortunately, can only fix a a minor wrong. It can only make right a small wrong. And I think if we're all being real with ourselves this morning, we recognize that something is very wrong in the world in, in us, the world around us, and the world in us. Something is wrong. And we often go to someone or something to make it right. We call that like a coping mechanism. Right? People go to substances sometimes to make things right. People go to food either to overeat or to undereat. To make things right. People go to other people, might say codependent relationships, thinking someone else is the solution to my problem. Someone else is going to make everything right. The reality is, is that we all draw near to someone or something to make a wrong right. So what is it for you? To who or what do you draw near to make things right? The Lord's going to answer this question for us in a beautiful and wonderful way this morning. So I'm going to invite Annika Maisie to come up. She's going to read the word for us, so please draw your attention to her. Our text this morning comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling. 
and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then any distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep, to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this is that, and this that shall come upon your house two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out every day before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Amen. Let's go to the Spirit in prayer, asking his assistance. Lord God, we come, and we ask that by your Spirit you would open our minds and our hearts, that we may see Jesus, our faithful priest, that we may know him, and that you would receive the glory in our lives as you work in and through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so some context for 1 Samuel, right? It's kind of hard just jumping into the second chapter of a book and you have no idea what's happening, right? 1 Samuel comes at the tail end in, a, in Israel's history, the tail end of the period known as the time of the judges, right? So you have, the, you have Moses leads the people out of Egypt and they go to the wilderness and then they wander for 40 years. And then when Moses dies, they enter into the land of Canaan, Joshua leads conquest, right? And they just blow through Canaan and then by the end of Joshua, Joshua is dead. There's not really a ruler. So the Lord, over periods of time, raises up individuals called judges. And these judges kind of set things right. They put the people back on the right path. Because if you've read Judges, we did a series of Judges many years ago at this point. But if you read Judges, Judges is jacked up. Like, it's one of the most messed up books of the Bible and probably has one of the most messed up instances in all of the scriptures near the tail end of it, right? Judges is this, it's this cycle. It's what's actually called the judges cycle. People sin, they get messed up. They fall into slavery. They cry out to the Lord for redemption. The Lord raises up a judge and then the judge redeems the people. This happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges, so that's the context we're coming in here in 1 Samuel, near the tail end of this. And things are not right in Israel. Things are messed up. And here, at the opening of our uh, passage, a prophet, a man speaking for God, comes to Eli, who is the priest at the time. And he gives him a little history lesson. 
right? He says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. If you're wondering what a priest was, it's simple. Priests were people chosen by God to devote themselves to God's worship as they performed sacrifices to make themselves and the people of Israel right with God. That's what they did. They were almost like worship leaders in Israel's life. If you wanted to be made right with God, you drew near to the priest. This is who Eli was. Or at least this is who Eli was supposed to be. Eli was supposed to be an instrument of righteousness in Israel's life and worship. But something has gone terribly wrong. The Lord continues, he says, or the prophet, the Lord continues, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I committed for my dwelling, commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? In the law, there were provisions for priests to live off of the sacrifices. But what we see here is not quite that. Eli and his sons were living off the best parts of those sacrifices. Like they should have been eating eye around, but they were cutting out the flame and yon, right? They were taking the best parts of the sacrifices for themselves and fattening themselves with them. Kind of reminds me in our own day and age of so-called pastors who fatten their wallets off the sacrifices of their people, the people who draw near to them, thinking they can help them be made right with God. Shaming Christ's name for a larger house, for a jet. It's one of Eli's problems. They're fattening themselves on God's sacrifices. But he's got another problem. Eli puts up with his sons, and he honors them rather than honoring the Lord. Right? A father who should be lovingly rebuking his sons for their wickedness has instead become a participant in their wickedness. How opposite is that? When a father follows after the sins of his children, when a it's like the tail wagging the dog. Parents, don't follow after the sins of your children. Children are meant to follow their parents, Christ-like example. And something has gone very wrong in a society when parents follow after the sins of their children. That's how messed up Israel is at this time could probably think of some parallels in our own time. Unfortunately, Eli and his sons were in no position to make the people right with God. They were spiritually blind 
and fat with unrighteousness. So the Lord brings a verdict against Eli and his house. I'm going to fly through these, but I'd encourage you to go over the passage later as well. But here are the things that the Lord says. He says that Eli's house, they would no longer hold a position of authority anymore. No more authority for Eli's house. In fact, they're going to all die young and by violence. There's some anecdotal, like, I mean, you get into some older commentaries on the Bible, and there's always some interesting little tidbit that's like, is that true? How could they have possibly known that? And in some of these commentaries, they talk about how uh, there was some speculation that Eli's household, that nobody lived past the age of 18, that they all died young by violence. I don't know if that's true. Interesting church, uh, church of speculation in the past. They would die young by violence. But even those who are spared, though their lives are short, will weep their eyes out and grieve. They would have a miserable life. And even as they live, they would see a faithful priest, another priest from a, another house, a different household, come to power. A priest who is Faithful, a priest to whom Eli's ancestors would go to just to receive like the smallest amount, a morsel or a loaf of bread or a piece of silver. What sign does the Lord say he's going to give to Eli that all of this is going to happen? Both of his sons are going to die on the same day. To sum it all up, Eli, because of your sins and the sins of your sons, no one will draw near to you or any of your house to be made right with God ever again. No longer will I put up with your wickedness. Your household will become beggars, desirous of a bygone era. When we read a little further in First Samuel, in chapter 4, we see the fulfillment of these things. We see some immediate fulfillment. In chapter 4, the Philistines, the enemy of the people, come after Israel's encampment in Ebenezer, and they wipe out 4,000 men. And Israel, because of their spiritual blindness at their time, they're like, you know what's a good idea? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, and let's bring it. And then we'll be victorious because we'll have our magical talisman with us. Well, that doesn't work out for them. The Philistines muster up strength. They wipe out some more Israelites and then they steal. They take the Ark of the Covenant. And Hophni and Phinehas both die on the same day. Not only that, but once this news has made it to Eli, that the ark has been taken, Eli falls back from his seat, breaks his neck, and dies. He broke his neck under under his own weight. He was a large man, the man who fattened himself with unrighteousness died beneath 
his own weight. Merry Christmas. Here's the end of this matter. Eli and his sons were unfaithful priests who couldn't make anyone right with the Lord to whom no one would draw near to anymore. That's the judgment on that house. So the question is, since these unfaithful priests would no longer stand between God and the people, who would? Right? Priests were not an accidental feature of Israelite life. It was necessary. The people needed priests. The sacrificial system recognized that something was wrong with the people, that mankind was sinful, that God was a holy and just God, that he must punish Sin, blood must be shed to be made right with God. I mean, maybe we think that's like a little like unfair, maybe a little brutal, even archaic. After all, we're not that bad. People are mostly good, right? Surely punishment is only for the worst of the worst, for the Hitlers and the... Stalins and the Pol Pots. Well, I think as a society, we expect judges to judge justly, correct? That it is a hallmark of a just and equitable society when you have good judges in place to judge justly. The trouble is that when we start thinking about God, we sort of treat him like an impotent grandfather who just looks at our sins as minor squabbles or little infractions, and he pats us on the head, and he says, there, there, everything will be all right. The truth is, God is a good and just judge, holy, righteous. He must punish sin. God is good and just, and we think far too highly of ourselves. Our guilt before him is firmly established. So who are the people of God going to draw near to to be made right with this holy, just, righteous God who must punish sin? Well, in the midst of this curse on Eli's house, the Lord makes a promise. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a shore house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Right? Just to break this down, the Lord himself will raise up a faithful priest He himself will raise up this faithful priest since Eli was unfaithful to raise up his sons. The Lord's faithful priest would reflect both the heart and the mind of God. The Lord's faithful priest will have an established house. It won't end. It'll go on forever. The Lord's faithful priest 
would in some ways be in relationship to the Lord's anointed Messiah. Who is this faithful priest? Well, generally speaking, it's every good priest that comes after this. Generally speaking, every good priest that comes after this was a good thing. A faithful priest. The Lord did provide faithful priests in Israel's life. Faithful priests who trusted the Lord and did what was according to God's mind and his heart. A good priest was a good thing. And some of them did a lot of good. But there was a fundamental feature. It looks like a flaw, but it's actually a feature, not a bug, but a part of the program in the priesthood and its sacrifices that we cannot overlook this morning. That fundamental feature was the priesthood's and its sacrifices' limitations. It was limited. Priests were limited by sin. They had to offer sacrifices not only for the people, but also for themselves. Not only that, but the sacrifices were animals. How can an animal rightly pay for the sins of a human being? The limitations of the priesthood indicated the need for a perfect priest who could offer a perfect sacrifice. A priest, unlike us in our sin, and a sacrifice, like us in our nature. So who is this faithful priest? We're in church, everybody. This is a Christian church. I don't know if you realize that. Feels like a dead giveaway. That faithful priest is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the faithful priest who makes us right before the Lord to whom we must draw near. Eli didn't raise his sons up to be faithful priests, but the father sent his son to be a faithful priest. Jesus Christ is the faithful priest who perfectly reflects God's mind and heart Because he is God himself. Jesus Christ has a sure house, a kingdom of priests to the living God. Jesus Christ is the faithful priest who is the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord. Right? Priests were limited by personal sin always having to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Jesus Christ had no sins. He offered no sacrifice for himself, but only for the sins of his people. Therefore, his death could sufficiently pay for our sins. People drew near to imperfect priests to offer imperfect animal sacrifices that couldn't make anyone perfectly right with the Lord. But the blood of bulls and goats, right? We just read it this morning, and we're going to hear it again later. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Jesus Christ came as a human to die for humans. 
for our, with our nature to die for us, like dying for like. And every animal sacrifice pointed forward to the need for this sacrifice, the sacrifice of a perfect, spotless substitute. Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus Christ perfects all those who come to him in faith, trusting in his sacrificial death. Jesus Christ is our faithful priest who sacrificed himself to make us perfectly right before a holy and just God. Amen? Jesus Christ is the faithful priest who makes us right before the Lord to whom we must draw near. Are you right with the Lord this morning? Are you in a peaceful relationship with God? If you don't know, if you don't know how to answer that question, there isn't a more important question that you need answered in your whole life. Only Jesus Christ can make you right with God. When standing before God, we hear this sometimes. If the Lord, if you were to stand before the Lord, and he were to say, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in to heaven? I'll tell you what you can't say. You can't say because of your good works. Because your good works will never outpace your sin. You will never, we will never be good enough on our own because of sin. It can't be because you weren't as bad as the next guy. Because all sin must be justly judged. Friend, it's only if you draw near to Christ as a faithful priest that you'll be made right with God. It's only trusting in his work, right? Putting down your efforts to make yourself right with God and looking to Jesus alone to be made right with him. Only Jesus can make you right with God. If you don't know if you're right with God this morning, look to Christ. He will save you from your sins. Draw near to him in faith, and he will draw near to you in love. For us here who have drawn near to Christ in faith, who trust in him alone for salvation, we must continue to draw near to Jesus. It's not like you do it once. And then you sort of walk away from it. No, no, no. Every day, every hour, every moment, draw near to Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest. The author of the Hebrews conveniently sets up all of our application we need for this morning. If you want to know more about what does it mean that Jesus is a priest, like, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's the core of that book. What is Jesus' work as priest? We have some reasons to act this morning. 
That because Jesus is our high priest, we have some action steps to take, some things to do in our life, some things that the Lord calls us to. The author of the book of Hebrews says, since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Right? Jesus couldn't do anything more to make us right with God. And I know that some of us, many of us, even myself, we struggle with assurance. We struggle with assurance before the Lord. As bad as I am, how could I possibly be made right with this God? Friends, because Jesus is our priest, we can have full assurance that our sins are forgiven. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. He is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. Isn't that the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That this God who had no limitation took on limitation? This God who knew no sin, took on the likeness of sinful flesh without sin, who knew no temptation, came to no temptation, yet without sin. Why? So he could sympathize with our weaknesses. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. You can have assurance that because Jesus is your priest, your sins are forgiven. He goes on, he says, since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Right? We proclaim Christ. That's our confident confession. We have confident hope in our confession of Christ as Lord. We need not waver. Jesus is faithful. We struggle so much with fear and evangelism. With coming across as weird or odd to our neighbors. Or just the anxiety of stepping out in faith to share Jesus. Friends, we have more than enough reason to have a confident confession before our neighbors. Our faithful priest is more than enough reason to have a confident, to be confident in sharing the gospel with others. But in our modern world, it kind of feels like, like there's pressure these days, right? That it's getting harder to confidently confess Christ in the world. The world's sin can affect our confidence in our confession, right? We're told to be on the right side of history, that some would consider us in this room bigots or fear mongers. And under those conditions, it's tempting to modify our confession in order for it to be more palatable to people who aren't even interested in Jesus. 
If we lose confidence in our confession, we will compromise Christ. Friends, we have no need to fear the world. We have no need to modify our confession. Jesus is our faithful priest who gives us strength for a confident confession. Lastly, in Hebrews, he says, Since we have a high priest over the household of God, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, do you want a proof text for go to church? It's right there. Especially as you understand the book of Hebrews in its entirety. Hebrews was a sermon. And this was one of his applications. Go to church. When we gather as a church, we gather and draw near to our faithful priest who sacrificed for himself, sacrificed himself to make us right with God. And it has always been I couldn't be more clear. (laughs) History itself couldn't be more clear. It has always been the habit of Christians to gather on the Lord's Day to worship as His church. It was that way in the Old Testament. It is that way in the New Testament. Nothing changes. But American spirituality says you can worship God anywhere. On the golf course, at the conference, out hunting, at home. That no one really needs the institutional church, or it's at least, at best, optional. Friends, there is no Christianity without the church gathering with its faithful priest. Jesus Christ, our faithful priest. A churchless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And to neglect to meet together is to harm our progress in love and good works. Christian discipleship starts here and now. In this moment, this is where Christian discipleship begins. The Christian week, right, begins on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. The the whole week ascends to Sunday, and at the same time descends away from it. Because this is the time when we gather with our faithful priest, and we encourage one another to love and good works. This fuels discipleship like nothing else in your entire life will. No private devotion does what this does. No time with individual pockets of Christians does what this does. But this also leads to those things, to private devotion, to spending time with one another, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, right? Not neglecting this time here and not neglecting time out there. If we aren't 
spending time with one another in Christian community, both here and out there, in loving community in worship and in loving community in discipleship with one another, we got to start asking the hard questions about just how serious we are as Christians. This is what the Lord calls us to. This is what our faithful priest calls us to. This is what Jesus died for so that we could do this together. We were a scattered people, but we've become a gathered people. Jesus, our faithful high priest, died so that we can gather together to spur one another on to love and good works. There's nothing in your whole life that you need more than for the virtue of love to be formed in you. And it's in the context of Christian community where love is shaped. Amen? Amen. Friends, our time together in this life matters. Because as he says here, right? He says you encourage one another. You meet together. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our time together in this life matters because this is not the only life. There is a day drawing near when God will judge the living and the dead. The Lord will recreate all things. This life, as we know it, will be no more. And God will usher in a new heavens and a new earth where our faithful priest reigns. So we need to encourage one another to love and good works today. Because one day we will stand before our Lord. And what should we desire most? I'm going to tell you what we should desire most on that day. We should desire to hear the words of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the day we're heading towards. That's the day we encourage one another to. That's the day that our faithful high priest has saved us for. Friends, Jesus is the faithful priest who makes us right with the Lord to whom we must draw near. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. We love what you've done for us. We thank you for our faithful priest. Lord, give us grace and strength to do all that you call us to in light of the work of our faithful priest to Jesus Christ. Receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.